Father, you indeed sent your Son into the world, into the world. You gave him. We receive him. We know him. And it's all because of you, Lord. It's all because of the gospel. It's all because of your love for us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we enter in to the reality of the gospel again, you would bless us. You would cause us to consider who we really are, Lord, to consider what we're really like and to consider who you really are and what you're really like. Father, I pray you would turn our hearts and our minds towards you. Help us, Lord. Help here, my friends. Help me, Lord, family, to see you, to save you, to know you, and to declare you in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, Chapel Street. It's good to be back. And morning to those online and those that will listen later on the podcast. Uh, you will have noticed that we're not in Hebrews this morning. We're taking a quick break from Hebrews. Before I go any further, I actually want to congratulate you. I've got it down here and I've forgotten. 40 years. Congratulations. That's amazing, don't you think? Should we? Yeah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, but we're taking that break from Hebrews. Uh, I thought it was uh, wise. Uh, we'll find out if it was in a moment to depart from Hebrews because we're at the end or we came to the end of Hope Explored last week and uh, thanks to everyone that took part in that and uh, served in many different ways just to reconsider what is the kernel the heart the central message of Christianity things have central messages or main messages and in time sometimes they get lost they get forgotten, they get missed out, they get obscured, they turn into other messages. Christianity is not a book that's a self-help lesson in how to live. There's clearly lessons in how to live in it. Can't deny that, can we? But it's much, much more than that. And there's so many problems in churches today that obscure the gospel. They pointed it from a distance. Sometimes they undermine it completely, and sometimes it's not even present. You can't afford to do that. You just can't afford to do that at all. It astounds me that a collection of books, which is what the Word of God is, 66 books, has a main message in it that's consistent across all of them. That's extraordinary, isn't it? 35 different authors, 4,000 years of writing comes together. Imagine if you went to the library and pulled 66 books together, even in the same subject, I might tell you, and created or revealed or extracted a main message from them. But to separate those across 4,000 years, surely that's miraculous. But there is a main message. And as I've already alluded to it, the main message of the Bible is the gospel. The good news. That's what gospel means. 
And sometimes I think even just calling it the gospel can obscure the fact that it's good news. Maybe you should just call it the good news. Good, no better. No greater news than the gospel in this world. There is nothing better. There is news, some of it bad, some of it good, but not the good news. The good news is for everyone. There is no other name under heaven or earth given to man, given by which you must be saved. It's the good news that we need to hear, and the world needs it more than ever. In a nutshell, and we need to get out of nutshells into, I guess, the tree. I'm not quite sure about that, but the tree. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, in the simplest way, what the gospel is. He says, I want to remind you, Corinthian church, Chapel Street, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the good news, which you received. You were given it and you took it. You received it by which you are which you stand in, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. He says, I received it as first importance. That's got to be good, the best news, isn't it? It's of first importance. That Christ died for sins. There it is. According to scripture, he was buried, he was truly dead, and on the third day he rose again, according to scripture. And Paul says that the Lord Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people, the apostles, to 500 at one time. And he says, listen, many of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go and chat to them. Though some, he says, are dead now. And then he says, as to one who is untimely born, he appeared to me. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for the sins of the world. You hear it in John 3.16 there. conducted a work on the cross. It's a real event. It's a historical truth. And we're going to use this phrase that Paul uses, the cross, to summarize the gospel. That's how he describes it. We preach Christ crucified, the cross, to the Jews, the stumbling block, to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom, he says, and the power of God. So we're just going to use that phrase, the cross. Um, it's not always easy to appreciate the message of the cross if we just deal with the nutshell. I remember one time I was in China in Beijing, working a long time ago now, and I met this guy in, in a hotel in Beijing, British guy like myself, say hi, got to know him a little bit, got a chat, and I said to him eventually, what do you do for a job? And he said, oh, I'm a messenger to the queen. Said, wow, that sounds pretty cool. Um, what's a messenger to the queen? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the queen in her acts of diplomacy on behalf of the Commonwealth sends messages to various countries. It's very important for trade and all sorts of things, not just down to the government. He said, that's, that's amazing. But I kind of thought it's a little bit odd. Just, couldn't she just send an email? Couldn't she even write a letter? They said, well, the problem with these messages is they need interpreting. They need to be explained so that the receivers 
of the message can be understanding or have an understanding of what the message really is. And he said to me, what, what do you do? And I worked in consulting back then, and, but I didn't really want to say that. So I said, well, I'm the messenger of the king. You maybe need to understand that message. And so today I want to say the same thing. That's why I'm here. I'm a messenger of the king. And by the way, if you're a believer, so are you. Nothing special about me at all. But we need to understand it. We need to comprehend it, what the message of the King of Kings really is, what this gospel, this cross really is. And I want you to know that to understand or to unpack, as it were, this nutshell view of the gospel, we need to understand the context that the gospel sits in. It doesn't just appear randomly in human history. It appears at a time which sits in a context. Which takes us to our first point, the three points. I've just got three points today. I did tell Bruce that at one point, one of my sub-points had 12, but I have cut it down, which is just as well in view of the time. But just three points. And the first point is this, the context of the cross. The context of the cross, the big Bible story, the story that overarches those 66 books. And it goes like this. And we could take a long time on this, right? So I'm cutting it down a bit. God, this is where it starts. It doesn't start anywhere else. It has to start here. God is the creator. That's where it starts. God is, he exists, he's always existed. Nothing existed before God. No one created God, but he is the creator. He's the one that created everything. And when he created it, we learned that it was all good. It was all good. It's an expression we use in the Australian vernacular. Something, you think something's not great. No, it's all good. Don't worry about it. But this was all good in the sense of perfection, uh, holiness, clean, peaceful. That's all good. He created the spheres. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. The context for life, right? And then he created the life that exists in that context. And the jewel, as it were, in the crown was you. Us, humankind. Started with one man, one woman, Adam and Eve. And between God and Adam and Eve, in this garden, in this creation, there was peace. There was peace. There was no enmity or strife but then of course it all went wrong or you might say it all went according to plan in truth mankind humankind adam eve rebelled they rebelled against god they broke the one law that he set up they turned away they said not you thanks for everything Thanks for this wonderful place, this peaceful place. But we don't really want you. We don't really want this relationship. We'd rather just do what we want. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It sounds familiar to me. And they rebelled and sinned and turned away from God. And guess what? There was no longer any peace between a holy God that created all things good and mankind rebelled because it brought offense to God. 
demonstrated to God that he wasn't the most important thing above creation. Demonstrated that to them. Of course, God knows differently. Now, we could go through Noah, we could go through the whole Bible, but it would take a long time, so I'm jumping to Abraham. This is the context. Abraham gets a covenant made with him by God. God gives him a promise, and he says, listen, one day I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to call your people into a land so that you can possess it. And ultimately, we learn it's a, a land flowing with milk and honey where there is some kind of peace. Abraham goes along with the plan to some degree. And then we learn that the uh, descendants of Abraham eventually end up in captivity in Egypt. And God sends a rescuer in the form of Moses. Moses is a prophet. And he's a person that's used by God to call the people out of slavery into a land uh, on the way to the land that they would possess, the Abrahamic covenant that was made. And through Abraham, sorry, through Moses, who prefigures the personality of Christ. That's what he is, he's a type of Christ. He's not Christ, he's not God. But through him, God brings the law. That's how it comes. It comes through Moses. And the law was then for, their, for the Israelites to obey. That's what it was for. And the second thing it was for, or maybe it was the primary thing, was to display something of the holiness of God. This is what God is like. This is his law. It's a reflection of who he is, his image. Obey it. Please God. And we know that that didn't happen. And God, in the context of those laws, brought the sacrificial system. We've actually just celebrated that. Do you know that? That's the sacrificial system. That's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Getting way ahead of myself here. And the premise back then was that an animal would be sacrificed. Blood would be shed. There was a temple and there were priests. There were people that had the job of sacrificing and bringing blood into the temple. There was a place for them to do it. And that temple, by the way, at that point was a place where God would dwell. So he's kind of dwelling with man, but there wasn't peace, was there? God was separated from mankind by a curtain every time i talk about the curtain it gets wider but it was very very thick because god and man still couldn't be together in spite of animal sacrifices there was i guess you could say some kind of temporal peace through the sacrificial model that god created during that time man could not be fully reconciled to god i can't imagine what it was like going up to the Day of Atonement, for example, and uh, weeping for my sin, intentional and unintentional, and having the sacrifices happen and have that sense of God's judgment being enacted on an animal in my place and thinking, well, I'm free from sin, and then on the way home, sinning. Again, oh, I need to come back. I'm going to have to go back again and again and again. Then God brought kings. Uh, he didn't need to. The people asked for it. They want to be like the other people. And God said, you don't need them. He said, we really want one. So he allowed that to happen. There's a whole bunch of kings. They come through the line of Judah, which is the great grandson of Abraham, who the covenant was given to. And then God brought prophets. And so to summarize, we have a creator God, 
enmity with man and God. They have a promise that he would save ultimately and bring into a promised land and bring peace. We have a law that no one could obey. We have a sacrificial system to pay for the rebellion of, of men and women in sin that never fully satisfied. And we have priests that would offer the sacrifice, the offering for sin in the temple, but none of these things brought peace with God eternally. That's the context of the gospel. You get it? Because what happens next? Well, first there's radio silence. You ever got that situation when you're driving in the car, listening to the radio, it just goes silent? Well, there's 400 years of it. Silence. God didn't speak. History was just carrying on, this process, this system. Israel was being invaded. But in the middle of that, at the end of that time, that context is still there. Enter Jesus Christ. That's the context that Christ comes into. God so loved the world that he gave. He sent. And giving is passing out, pushing forward, giving something to someone else, sending, but it's also giving in this context in the sense of allowing a son to be given to sacrifice. The creator God, Jesus Christ, entered into his creation. We call it the incarnation. Nothing unusual about that in, in, in this context in church, although in the cosmic sense, there couldn't be anything more unusual. God shows up. And the ultimate end of that isn't nice words. The ultimate end of that isn't miracles. The miracles simply are signs. That's what the word means. They point to Christ and who he really is. He's very powerful and very authoritative. He's God. That's not the ultimate aim of Christ's coming. The ultimate aim is, as I've already said, that he dies for the sins of the world, that he's truly buried and rises again from the dead three days later. But listen to this. He's the prophet. He's the priest. And he's the king. What an amazing concept to set all of that up. When Christ enters, he fulfills the role of the real prophet. He fulfills the role of the great high priest, as we've been studying. And he fulfills the role of the king. And it's going to come back and fulfill that to the fully fulfilledness, if that makes sense. Completely, I should say. But this king, this prophet, this priest is different. Because when he goes into the sacrificial place, the temple, as Hebrew says, not made with hands, but one in heaven before the throne of God above, the sacrifice he brings is perfect. It is sinless. It is pure. It is blameless. It is spotless, as we've just sung. And it is himself. And so you see that the context adds some kind of richness, some weight, some rounded perspective, although we'll never get to the bottom of that in truth, to the gospel. The reason it works, the reason that Christ doesn't need to be sacrificed again is that he's valuable enough to pay for it all. And the enough is infinite. 
The value knows no end of Christ. This is the Son of God. There's no being more valuable, more treasurable, more glorious, more holy than God himself. And this was planned. This is all part of the plan. So you've got the context, right? You with me? Great. Some of you are with me. That's terrific. But that's the context of the cross, the big Bible story. Secondly, the consequences of the cross. Don't tell me that the Son of God incarnate, coming to earth, being sacrificed for the sin of the world, being dead and then being alive and then ascending into heaven. Don't tell me that that has no consequence. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a minor thing. It's not inert. It is of immense consequence. And I want us to know that there are two kinds of consequences. There are those that are positive and there are those that are... It's not rocket science, guys. There are those that are negative. And the positive consequences are for those who believe, who trust, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I use that word follow, I'm talking about believing. Right? So I'm talking about obeying, continuing, persevering. And the negative consequences are for those that don't believe, trust, follow Jesus Christ. It's very straightforward. So let's consider both of those consequences. First, we'll consider the positive ones. And I've just got four for us, but there are many. There are 14 or 15 at least. And those are these. We'll start with the first one. Grace. The grace comes through the cross. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved. This is how it comes. It's given through faith. Your faith isn't the thing that saves you. Ultimately, it's the grace that creates the faith that saves you. And this isn't your own doing. It's a gift. That's what grace is. It's a gift of God. God sent his one and only son. This is the gift. Not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. It's a gift. The Holy Spirit brings it, by the way. And in a simple sense, grace is the gift of the Holy Spirit or God absolving the debt of a sinful person. And by definition, we don't deserve it. It's a sinner getting what he or she doesn't deserve. Paul mentions grace 86 times. He only writes 13 letters. He mentions it 86 times. And through him and through the rest of the world, we learn that we're justified by grace. We learn that we believe by grace. We're strengthened by grace. We're built up by grace. We stand by grace. We're given the free gift by grace. We have gifts in life by grace. We serve by grace. We glorify God by grace. We're bound to every good work by grace. We're accepted in the beloved by grace. The name of Christ is glorified in us by grace. We have everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. And we are called with a holy calling by grace. And we are forgiven by grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. By definition, as I've said, we don't deserve it because if we deserved it, it wouldn't be a gift, would it? If you deserve something, you're paid on the best. You work in a job, 
get paid an hourly rate, you do the hours, you get the reward. That's the money, the payment. That's not grace. That's a reward. Grace is getting that without doing the work. The word is saying you can't do the work because you're not holy. You're not blameless. You can't abide by the law. And if it's a picture of the character of God, then you better find a way to get forgiven. But you can't do it. But it comes by grace to us. Second point of these of this list is mercy. Mercy. And that's an easy one, right? If grace is getting what you don't deserve, then mercy is not getting what you do. Simple as that. God says, well, I'm giving you my grace. If you accept it, the judgment that actually is due to you has been meted out on someone else. So if you accept this gift, what you get in the place of judgment is simply mercy. What we deserve is judgment. And I think that's one of the hardest things for people to accept. People don't generally generally see themselves as sinners. No one I know outside of church goes around saying, you know what, I'm a terrible, wicked person and I've offended God. People don't see themselves that way. And so they think there's no judgment. I don't believe all this stuff that we're going through. Hebrews tells us it's appointed for man to die once and then to be judged. Ephesians 2, 4, a bit before the passage we read a moment ago, says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy. There it is. Because of his great love, God so loved the world. Because of his great love, which he loved us with, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Mercy. Is that little doorway that opens when grace is given and faith is enacted. And it's a consequence of the cross for those who believe. The next one is forgiveness. It should be obvious, but I guess we ought to cover it. Um, man's greatest need is forgiveness, right? That's, you can't go anywhere in the, in the eternal sense without that being the most significant need. We're made simply like this, to be in communion with God. That's a picture in, in Eden. Adam and Eve were in communion with God prior to sinning. They were naked and unashamed. They didn't know what sin was. Fantastic. We're made to be in communion with God, our creator. We have lost that communion with our creator because we've offended him by breaking his laws. And the only way home to have communion with our creator is to have communion with our creator restored. And the only way to have that communion restored is to have the offense that we've caused him dealt with. And the only way to have that offense dealt with is to be forgiven. And the only way to be forgiven is to have someone else pay the price for us. It's the only way. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't suffer enough to pay for it, your background and your status, your sense of importance or connection or the job that you have doesn't bring it. The only way to be restored to your creator is by being forgiven. What does the Lord say? What does it profit a man? If he gets everything, if he gains the whole world, what does it profit him if he forfeits his soul? 
You can't save your soul by getting everything in this world. You need forgiveness. And the cross, primary message of the, of the Bible, gives you just that. What did Christ say on the cross himself? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're killing the son of righteousness. Forgive them. Forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Ephesians puts it like this in chapter 1. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. So in him, in his work, we have redemption. We are freed through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. It all comes together, doesn't it? Forgiveness, mercy, redemption, grace. And it says that which he lavished on us. I love that expression. Well, it's a little bit of grace for you, Sam. No, you need a lot. Let's just lavish you with grace, right? If we say we have no sin, we are lying. We're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. There it is. For our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. We have those three in the great cocktail of Christ. It's not a great analogy that, but you get the concept. You get something else. Peace. You get peace. When you have forgiveness of sins, when you have grace, when you have mercy, the result, the outworking of it is peace. And you get that eternally. So on the Day of Atonement, back in the day when you went up to the temple and the sacrifices were made, maybe you had a bit of peace. But not for long. But here, you get it eternally. And that's what you need. Isn't that what it was like in the garden before sin? We can't be with Christ. We can't be with God without peace. Therefore, says the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, being justified, being made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and mercy and forgiveness bring peace as a result. So those are just a few of the positive consequences of the cross. As I said, there are many others. And I would encourage people to really reflect on those things. Now, what is wrath? What is righteousness? What is justice? What is victory? Just reflect. What is glory? What is holiness? What is suffering in this context? How was Christ perfected through suffering? What Hebrews says, amazing concept. Just reflect on those. Don't just come to church and sing those concepts and use those words with one another at the front or leading or whatever we're doing. Don't just use, reflect on those words. What does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean to be ransomed out of slavery? Spend time on that as Christians, please. I encourage you to do that. Well, they're the positive ones, so we've got to cover the negative ones, right? It would be wrong to leave them out. Pretty easy, pretty simple. If you reject Christ and his work on the cross, then you reject forgiveness. 
stands to reason, doesn't it? If you reject Christ and his work on the cross, then you reject grace. You reject mercy. And you don't get peace. I'll tell you what, there are many things in this world that people want. Wealth, freedom, materialism, lots of things that people want. But I tell you what, people strive sometimes for peace and they never get it. We've talked and prayed about wars and persecutions all over the world. They're not new. They're not new things. They've been around forever. There's not a lot of peace. And you can't have perfect peace in yourself either, by the way. You can't have the idea of, well, if I just meditate for long enough, or I just read this book, or I just remove myself for a time from society or from a family or whatever it is, I'll just have peace. It doesn't work that way comes from outside of us not inside that's it you reject this gospel you don't get those things and guess what there remains judgment there remains judgment and I find that scary we're told work out your salvation with fear guys trembling this isn't something to be trivial about or messed around with which is profoundly serious. The writer of Hebrews 10, and we'll be eventually come to this verse, says this, and he's referring principally to Christians who, or people who call themselves Christians and have left, but uh, he's also referring to us or challenging us and people who don't know Christ at all. If, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That's what we're doing this morning. We're receiving the knowledge of the truth. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. He's a strong word. A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, he's referring now back to the Old Testament, what happens? Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. There it is. Don't mess around with sin. If you're not a Christian, you will be judged. Sorry. Messenger of the king here. If you've got a complaint with that, you can talk to me, but it'd be better to talk to the king. I'm just delivering the message. There's no peace with God if you reject the message. The only judgment remains and you won't be able to say you never knew because you heard it this morning at least. Okay, that was pretty heavy. So point number one, the context of the cross, the big Bible story. Point number two, the consequences of the cross. And point number three, the call of the cross. See, the context of the cross is actually your context. When you think about it, you can kind of try and objectify about the Old Testament. And well, thousands of years ago, they did this and God did that and so on. But it's actually your context. 
you're born in the same, you're not Israelites necessarily, I know that, but you're born into the same context, context of reality that everyone else is. God created you. You might say, well, that was actually down to my mum and dad. Biologically, yes, that's true. But who created them? Well, you might say it was down to their mums and dads. You can keep going if you want, because you'll come back to Adam. And God created Adam, and we're made in his. Uh, we're descended from him. We're made in the image of God, but we're descended from him. But God created you. His holy law pertains to you. The Ten Commandments, let's say, do they not pertain to you? They're just for the Israelites, or they're for the cosmos, for the world. Your rebellion was against him. Same context. You need someone to pay for your rebellion. Same context. It's not that the Jews were the only people that needed someone to pay for their sin. The whole world did. The Greeks weren't saved. And otherwise you will have no peace. The consequence or the consequences of the cross that I've just mentioned are your consequences too. Don't separate yourself from this truth, guys. They're either positive or negative. There ain't no bit in the middle. You've either got the positive ones or you've got the negative ones. And what I want you to do is move from the negative ones to the positive ones. And But the call of the cross is for you as well. You see, you don't. if you don't know Christ, you don't have mercy. You don't have um, peace. You don't have forgiveness. But grace is still on offer, isn't it? It's still on offer right now. Not forever. There's the time coming when grace will no longer be offered. But it's currently still on offer. The Lord will return and everything will change. We had a, a question in the Bible study some weeks ago uh, where someone said, what if um, when Jesus comes back, everybody will just repent and it'll all be good. That's not how it happens. It's not how it happens. Grace is still on offer. Let me be very, very clear about this. God is binary. He's not good and evil. He is good. He's not just and unjust. He is just. He's not righteous and unrighteous. He is righteous. He is binary. There is a yes and there is a no in life. There is a right and there is wrong. And there is truth and there is lies. We're living in a postmodern world where people stand there and define what they think is reality by their own sense. It's not like that. Truth is never what you make it. Truth is truth. And because of that, there is no middle ground. There is no sitting on a fence. There is no fence. <laughs> you're on the negative side or you're on the positive side. There isn't a bit in the middle. There's no no man's land. There's no purgatory to get out of later. That doesn't appear in the Bible. You can't just say, well, you know what, maybe... Maybe is a no. Maybe is the negative side. It's a yes or a no. It's an affirming Christ or a denying Christ. Those who are not for me are against me. Grace is on offer. The gift is there. So if you want to receive like those Corinthians, and Paul preached the gospel to them, they received it, you want to stand in it if you want to be saved by it what do you have to do well 
It's simply this. Confess who you are to God. Diminish pride. Come to God humbly and broken, being really sincere about who you are. You're coming before a holy God. He's sincere about who he is. Confess. Put your faith, your trust in him. Believe. Follow. It means to repent, to fight, to strive, to obey him, to persevere in faith no matter what comes. I believe that scripture teaches you're in this context, but if you do these things, you will move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. From the negative consequences to the positive. Paul says, I think in Corinthians today, today's the day of salvation. Don't put it off. You do not know what will come today in your life. Today is that get it sorted today. Don't come to God with, with an idea that you'll come when you've got your life fixed, patched up. When you've worked everything out, then I'll come to God. When my life is sorted and I have my career and the car and the family and the whatever it is you think you need to do to patch up your life, just come and confess who you really are. Because you'll never, you'll only come with a patched up life. <laughs> you come and say, Lord, I need my life patched up. That's okay. I got the cure. His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy, and His peace. And I'm going to be bold here. I'm going to tell you, you need to beg God. Don't come and just say, uh, you know, uh, could I have some of that forgiveness? Thanks very much. That's why sometimes just coming and making that prayer isn't the answer. You need to beg, Father, forgive me, please. I, I recognize who I am. I recognize what I'm really like. Sometimes people that grow up in the church find that bit the hardest. I'm not saying they're not Christian necessarily. But to get to that point where we're truly honest about who we are, because friends, how else will you find peace in the world? Where are you going to get it from? True eternal peace. Christ the righteous died for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God peacefully. Right? How are you going to find peace in this world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes that's his trust, is confessional, is repentant, is following, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later John says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning I thank you that truth is not various, that your nature and your character is binary. Father, I thank you that we can see absolute evidence of that in the person of Jesus Christ. But Lord, as we look at your son, 
we can gaze. Your word says he's the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of your nature, Father. When we see him in scripture, when we cry out to him in prayer, we see a God who is truly authoritative, truly holy, truly perfect, and has died for the sin of the world. And so, Lord, I pray today that if there are people here that don't believe in you, they don't trust you and have no peace in their heart because they've not received mercy, Lord, that you would lavish your grace on them. In Jesus, amen.